This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 195, entitled, Jesus, the Human High Priest. I'll be looking at the book of Hebrews and how Hebrews opens by depicting Jesus as this perpetual high priestly person and the Christology surrounding that very important role. I do want to give you a reminder that the day after this podcast releases, I will be participating in a debate entitled, Does the Old Testament Teach Unitarianism? I, of course, will be affirming that stance. And so I hope that you can support me in that debate. And we will, of course, talk about the debate and listen to the debate in subsequent episodes. The link to watching it, if you want to watch it afterwards or even watch it live, will be posted in the notes associated with this episode. So please look forward to it. In this week's episode, we will look at how the book of Hebrews introduces Jesus as the high priest. Identifying Jesus as the high priest is a unique contribution to New Testament theology made by the author of Hebrews. It's not the sort of thing that you learn from other books of the New Testament like Matthew, the Gospel of John, 1 Corinthians, or even the book of Revelation. We, however, are going to focus our study primarily on Hebrews chapters 4 through 5, because there's a lot more that's said in chapter 6 and chapter 7, but I try to keep things into a nice, comfy 30-minute episode. How was Jesus portrayed as a high priest when Jesus did not descend from the line of Aaron and his line of Levitical priest? What is God's role in Jesus' unique position as high priest? How is God involved in Jesus' position? What does it mean that Jesus was unable to save himself? And what are the Christological implications of Jesus learning obedience? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is initial impressions of Jesus' high priesthood. So we'll go ahead and read the passage that we'll be looking at today. It starts in the middle of Hebrews chapter 4, and it goes all the way through chapter 5, ending right before the end of chapter 5. So we'll start in chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For... We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For... Every high priest taken from among men is appointed 
on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. As Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. So let's talk about my initial impressions of this passage. Well, it makes it pretty clear that Jesus, who is a fellow human being like you and me, is someone who is able to sympathize with us. And his ability to be sympathetic is determined on the fact that he is a fellow human being. He is a member of the human race. The author goes out of his way to make that particular point. Specifically, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, what sort of weaknesses would the original readers of the book of Hebrews particularly possess? Well, of course, they are mortal. They are susceptible to death, even though the book of Hebrews does mention in passing that those to whom the book of Hebrews was originally written have not resisted confrontation to the point of having their blood shed, but they are mortal. They are susceptible to dying, like every other human being. But they also possess social weaknesses. They are open to abuse. They have been imprisoned. They have had things taken away from them. They have been harassed. They have been persecuted. And Jesus is able to sympathize with those things. Jesus himself was abused. Jesus himself was put into prison. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was harassed physically and socially. So there's a lot of connections between the ways that Jesus experienced his full humanity in his human life with the social situation that's going on for the original readers of the book of Hebrews, who likely live in Rome. Of course, it's very important to note that Hebrews chapter 4 indicates that Jesus was tempted. 
Now the verb could be translated as tested, and it doesn't matter whether you want to say that Jesus was tested or Jesus was tempted, but it's pretty clear that Jesus was tempted in every respect. It gets translated in the version that I read as that Jesus was tempted in all things. So it's not a pseudo-temptation or an appearance of temptation or a temptation maybe only in part of Jesus but not in all of his entirety. No, the author of Hebrews is very clear. Jesus was tempted in all things, in all manners, in every respect. However, Jesus did not yield to sin. Jesus was not someone on his own behalf that sacrifices needed to be offered because Jesus did not sin. But he was tempted in every way, in all things. Now we need to remember that God, the true God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, cannot be tempted, according to James 1.13. So the Bible is clear. God cannot be tempted, but Jesus was tempted in all things. What is the conclusion with that? Jesus is not the true God. There's a clear distinction that is made with those descriptions. So if Jesus did not yield to sin, what did Jesus do instead? Well, from the perspective of the book of Hebrews, and I think it's a very interesting way to think about it, the opposite of sinning is obedience. Jesus demonstrated obedience. He was faithful, but particularly he was obedient. And if Jesus was obedient, we have to ask the question, to whom was Jesus obedient? The answer, of course, is that Jesus was obedient to God, to Jesus' God, to the Heavenly Father. So obedience is the opposite of sinning. And Jesus did not only display obedience, but the passage indicates that Jesus learned obedience. And Jesus is learning, then Jesus is growing. He, Jesus is developing. Jesus is moving towards a state of being complete. Again, this is not a perfect son of God. This is someone that is growing, that is learning, that is becoming more obedient. Now, the passage does say that when he was perfected, another way of saying that when he was completed, which is due to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead to immortality on the initiative of God, then Jesus now has a sense of completeness. But prior to that, in his earthly ministry, Jesus was learning. He was growing. And you can see a variety of places toward Jesus learns and grows and learns new information within the Gospels. Particularly, I'm thinking of Luke chapter 2, where Jesus was growing in wisdom. He was learning. The author of Hebrews depicts Jesus as a genuine human being. Now, there are some very interesting parts of this passage that I think really deserve their own focus. We need to ask how it is that Jesus could be the high priest when Jesus did not descend from the line of Aaron. The line of Aaron involved a variety of Levitical priests, but Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. Jesus is from the line of David. So how could Jesus qualify as the high priest if he doesn't come from the correct lineage? The other question we need to ask is that if Jesus is functioning as the high priest, 
then he is being placed in a mediating position between the one true God in heaven and also between sinful humanity. So Jesus is acting in this mediating role. What sort of relationship does Jesus have with the only true God? So let's look at both of those particular points. First one we'll look at is what I'm calling point number two, the qualifications for the high priesthood. Now, the book of Hebrews indicates that Jesus is both the Son of God and Jesus is the high priest. Now, in order to be the Son of God, and by Son of God, I do mean that Jesus bears the title for the Jewish anointed king. The Jewish anointed king, who is the Son of God, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, was someone who was to be a lineal descendant of David. He had to be a biological descendant of David in order to be qualified to even be the Messiah. Okay, Jewish messiahs had to be human beings, specifically those descending from the line of David. But Jesus is also the high priest. And every other legitimate high priest, at least beginning with Aaron, was someone that came from the line of Levi. Okay, and Levi is not the original that has David within it. So these are two separate lines. How is it that the author of Hebrews is going to make the argument that Jesus is the Son of God, who is effectively a son of David, but also he is a high priest? And the answer is that the author sees within this primary text that's used to indicate Jesus' exaltation, which is Psalm 110, that Jesus is also someone who is going to be a priest forever. So let's talk about Psalm 110. The author sees in Psalm 110, specifically verse 1, that Jesus is this risen Lord who has been exalted to the true God's right hand. And then a few verses later, in Psalm 110 verse 4, the true God tells this risen Lord, that he is to be a priest forever, but a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews, who is infatuated with the fact that Jesus is this risen and exalted Lord, exalted to God's right hand, according to Psalm 110, also notes in that psalm that this risen, exalted Lord is a priest but not a priest, according to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, but a priest according to Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is this enigmatic figure that just appears on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. And Abraham, who is the star of the narrative up until that point, is someone who acknowledges the value of Melchizedek and Abraham actually offers tithes to Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is able to make the argument that Jesus is a high priest because of this interesting text in Psalm 110 that says that the risen Lord alongside the true God is also to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And the order of Melchizedek is someone who is designated biblically as a priest 
in a distinct way from the way that Levi and the descendants of Levi are to be described as priest. Now how the author goes about explaining this is very interesting in his exegetical argument. We'll talk about this here in a little bit. Now of course Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1 indicates that every priest is taken from among human beings. And it talks about how all the priests are human beings, they're members of the human race, and in the same line, Jesus is mentioned within this category. So the author of Hebrews is clear, Jesus is a human being. Okay, He's not Yahweh who became a human being, he's not an angel who became a human being, he's not some sort of divine being who became a human being. No, Jesus is an authentic human being, a real human being, a member of the human race. Now, in talking about these various qualifications, the author of Hebrews is making two citations from the Psalms, and the function of the citations is twofold. First, it's able to demonstrate that God himself is making the declaration that Jesus now bears this particular title, whatever title that may be. The other purpose is to indicate that Jesus is scripturally both the anointed king, the royal son of God, as well as a priest from the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is able to cite Psalm 2-7, which says that God declared that Jesus is the royal son of God. So God makes the initiative. God is the one that is making this argument, not the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews thinks that God has already made the argument. And also, Psalm 110, verse 4, to where God says to the person who has been exalted to God's right hand, God says that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this particular passage of Psalm 110, verse 4, is only cited in the book of Hebrews. It's not cited anywhere else in the New Testament. And so it's very interesting to see how this passage gets used. Let's talk about it. Psalm 110, verse 4, has God making the declaration to this exalted Lord figure that's been exalted to God's right hand, and says, you are a priest forever. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is a priest forever? Well, forever is indicative of the fact that Jesus now lives forever. Okay, Jesus died. He was someone who was dead in the grave. God had to save Jesus from death. God had to deliver Jesus from death by raising Jesus from the dead. So Jesus was dead for a little while. The author of Hebrews is very clear about that. But now Jesus has been raised to eternal life. He has now received unending life in light of resurrection, and now he can function as a priest forever. Every other priest was mortal who died, and in their death, another priest would take their place. But since Jesus is going to live forever, there's no need for a priest to come along after Jesus to take his place. He's never going to die. So the fact that Jesus is a priest forever indicates that Jesus now possesses, after the resurrection, unending life. Jesus was not always a priest. He is now designated as a priest forever. Now, Psalm 110 verse 4 also says that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so people have had some questions about this word order. What does it mean 
that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. But the Greek behind this English translation for the word order has the meaning of shape or pattern, after the pattern of Melchizedek. And what's interesting is that later on in the book of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus is described as being in the likeness of Melchizedek, indicating that Jesus and Melchizedek had similar features. Okay, so the author of Hebrews does not think that Jesus is Melchizedek. They are clearly distinguished. The author of Hebrews does not collapse Jesus and Melchizedek as being the same person. Jesus comes in the fashion of Melchizedek. He comes in light of the pattern of Melchizedek. Jesus and Melchizedek have similar features. But Melchizedek came first and Jesus came second. That much is very clear. Now, Hebrews is actually going to make the argument a little bit later in chapter 7 that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. So Hebrews is not simply saying that Jesus is the high priest. It's also arguing that the priesthood that Jesus now functions in is superior to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. It's very interesting how the author of Hebrews comes to this conclusion. I want you to listen to his exegetical argument. The author of Hebrews points out that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now this happened in Genesis chapter 14. God had not allowed Abraham to have Isaac as a child at this point. And if you remember that the lineage of Abraham goes that Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had another child named Jacob, and Jacob had multiple children involving the 12 tribes of Israel, but also we have Levi involved in the descendants of Jacob. So Abraham in Genesis chapter 14 paid tithes to Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews suggests that inside the loins of Abraham was Isaac, from whom came Jacob, and from whom came the 12 tribes, and also Levi. So in a sense, Levi who was the head of the Levitical priesthood, also paid tithes to Melchizedek. Despite the fact that he wasn't born, his father wasn't born, his grandfather wasn't born, it was his great-grandfather, Abraham, who actually paid those tithes to Melchizedek. And since Jesus is a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek, then it indicates that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, namely someone coming from the order of Melchizedek, being Jesus. So that means Jesus is better than Levi. Now you as the listener or the reader of Hebrews chapter 7 might think that this interpretive strategy of the author of Hebrews is a little loose, a little allegorical, definitely stretching the argument, but that's the argument that he makes. It's not the type of argument that I would make, but I think that's uh, it's, it's just very fascinating that uh, he is bold enough to make that sort of argument. But that's the way that he suggests that Jesus is superior to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. 
Let's move to our third and final point. Point number three is Jesus' high priestly relationship with God. So Jesus bears the title Son of God, which indicates that Jesus is someone with a relationship with God because he is God's anointed king. This passage is going to talk about Jesus who functions in this mediating role as the high priest, has a natural relationship with God. If Jesus is the mediator, then he has to have a relationship with God, and he has to have a relationship with sinful humanity. Now, Jesus bears the title high priest, but the text is pretty clear in multiple places to indicate that Jesus was appointed to the role of the high priest. God said that Jesus is to be the priest forever. Jesus didn't take it upon himself. Jesus didn't claim the title. Jesus didn't grasp at that title or that particular role. God is the one who had the initiative to make Jesus and to install Jesus as the high priest. The author of Hebrews indicates this with the citation from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, the passage is clear that Jesus didn't take glory onto himself. Jesus did not glorify himself because God is the one who glorified Jesus. Now, in Jesus' earthly lifetime, Jesus, like other priests, offered prayers and supplications. So again, the question is, to whom did Jesus offer these prayers and supplications? And the answer is that Jesus offered prayers and supplications to the true God, to Yahweh, to the Heavenly Father. And one of the prayers that Jesus offered was a request for deliverance. From what did Jesus need to be delivered? Well, clearly Jesus needed to be delivered from death. God answered this prayer of course, after Jesus died, by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus was delivered from the grave. Jesus was raised from the dead. He was given immortality. He was exalted. He was empowered. And he was enthroned at the right hand of God. Now, these prayers, these supplications and requests were offered, according to the book of Hebrews, to the one able to, to save Jesus from death. And in Greek, it's very clear that this is the one who is able to save him. Pros ton vinaminon sozin afton. Towards the one who is able to save him. The one. The one person. Very clear that Jesus prayed to the one person who is able to save Jesus. Meaning, the Father is the only person who could have saved Jesus. This, of course, depicts Jesus in a subordination role to the true God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was unable to save himself. In all of his power, he was unable to save himself because Jesus was dead. And when people are dead, they are unconscious in the grave. They can't do anything because they have no life in them. God was the only person who could save Jesus and the one to whom Jesus prayed is described as one person. That one person, of course, is God, because the God of the Bible is Unitarian in nature. Now, the passage is clear that Jesus was heard because of his piety and his reverence. The word translated as piety in the translation 
that I used is just another word for reverence. Okay, now there's a little bit of ambiguity as to what this means, but his piety or his reverence is likely Jesus' reverence for God. God heard Jesus' prayers, namely God responded to Jesus because Jesus had reverence for God. Now that's indicative of the relationship that they had. Jesus revered God. And that tells us about Jesus' relationship with God. The passage also says that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience. And this indicates that Jesus was a son in the natural sense. God was Jesus' father. Jesus was the son of God in the real way, as in the sense of birth. Jesus was a son prior to his exaltation, but as a son, Jesus learned obedience. He learned obedience. Specifically, he learned obedience in that which he suffered. There's an interesting pun in Greek, which is difficult to see in English. The pun that is often used in Greek literature has to do with the word learning and the word suffering. The pun is mathene, which is the verb to learn, and the Greek verb pathene, which is the verb to suffer. So you have mathene and pathene. They rhyme. They function as puns. And this is a known pun in the Greek world. And now we see it here that Jesus learned in that which he suffered. Of course, learning indicates that Jesus is growing. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's learning. He is developing himself. He is collecting knowledge and understanding. But Jesus was made complete. He was made perfect. The word perfect there could be understood as complete. And it says, having been made perfect, suggesting that God is the one that made Jesus perfect. God is the one that made Jesus complete. Jesus was not complete prior to his resurrection because he was mortal. He was susceptible to death. He died. So he wasn't complete because he was able to die. God was able to complete Jesus by raising Jesus from the dead and giving to Jesus immortality. And of course, the passage ends by saying that God designated Jesus to the role of high priest. God was the initiator in that. God gave that role to Jesus. Jesus didn't take it upon himself. And God, of course, was the one who had the authority and power to install Jesus in that very important position. So in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Hebrews offers a unique contribution to the theology of the New Testament by arguing that Jesus is the new high priest. In doing so, the qualifications and accomplishments of Jesus are discussed, as well as reasons why Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood of those coming from the likeness of Aaron. The benefits of Jesus' high priesthood include Jesus being able to relate to, sympathize with, and help other human beings who are in need. And in the situation involving the community to whom the book of Hebrews was written, this would include their suffering, their harassment, their temptations, and their social persecution. In order to argue that Jesus is now the high priest forever, the author of Hebrews looks to Psalm 110. 
from which the author has already understood Jesus as the exalted Lord caught up to God's right hand. The same psalm tells of a decree from God to this exalted Lord at his right hand, appointing him as a perpetual priest, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an enigmatic figure from the narrative of Genesis, where Abraham honored Melchizedek with tithes. The author of Hebrews argues that this act of homage, as well as the never-ending life Jesus now possesses due to his resurrection, point to a superior priesthood when compared to the Aaronic priesthood of Levites. And lastly, by depicting Jesus as the high priest, the author of Hebrews positions Jesus in a mediating role between the true God and humanity. In doing so, Jesus relates to God in some very interesting ways. Jesus is God's Son, both in the natural sense and light of his birth, and in the sense of the Jewish anointed king. Jesus prayed to God. Jesus offered supplications to God. Jesus saw God as the one person who could deliver Jesus from death. God responded to Jesus because of Jesus' piety, that is, Jesus' reverence towards God. Jesus is depicted as someone who learned, who grew, and he showed growth from a state of being incomplete. Ultimately, however, God completed Jesus at the resurrection and gave to Jesus the role of the high priesthood. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we break down the opening of my upcoming debate and hear my thoughts on how it went. Please look forward to our next episode. Again, this debate will be on October 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern, and you could see the link to it in the description of this video. It'll be on the Gospel Truth YouTube page, and the title of the debate is Does the Old Testament Teach Unitarianism? A proposition to which I will affirm. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out the PayPal link in the description. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.